After this collision, debris fell onto another track where they collided with the third passenger train. So a really horrific nightmare scenario. Hundreds killed in one of India's worst train disasters. How safe are the country's trains? For Saturday, June 3rd, this is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Eric Deggins. Do you have a healthy relationship with caffeine? LifeKit has some tips on how to better understand the effect it has on our bodies. Someone who's drinking a lot of caffeine might be short on sleep. We know sleep is an important risk factor for a number of diseases. And Vanity Fair journalist Maureen Ryan talks to us about her expose on the racist and sexist atmosphere behind the scenes on the hit show Lost and what it says about why toxic culture is so deep-seated in Hollywood. The word hazing came up a lot. The word bullying came up a lot, in addition to racist and sexist comments. First, news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Janine Herbst. President Biden has signed a bipartisan bill to avert a debt ceiling crisis. As NPR's Asma Khalid reports, the bill came after months of uncertainty and just a few days before the nation was expected to run out of money to pay its bills. The legislation raises the debt ceiling until January 2025 in exchange for limits on new federal spending. The bill adds work requirements for older people who receive food stamps. It also officially terminates the student loan debt suspension that was implemented during the pandemic. And it modifies environmental review processes, which notably include fast-tracking permitting for a new natural gas pipeline from West Virginia to Virginia. Both the White House and a number of Republicans in Congress are claiming victory for this compromise. Asma Khalid, NPR News. At the United Nations Friday, the Security Council called on Sudan's two warring factions to immediately cease hostilities. Linda Fasulo reports the council also extended the UN's political transition mission in the country for six more months. In a statement, the Security Council stressed the need to establish a permanent ceasefire arrangement and resume efforts to achieve a lasting political settlement. Council members also called on the two rival factions to facilitate humanitarian access and condemned all attacks on civilians, UN humanitarian and medical personnel and facilities, as well as the looting of humanitarian supplies. Linda Fasulo reporting. A federal judge has ruled that Tennessee's first-of-its-kind law restricting drag is unconstitutional. The ruling comes as other Republican-led states across the country are considering their own laws restricting drag. Mariana Bacayao of member station WPLN has more. Judge Thomas Parker ruled that Tennessee's drag restrictions violate the First Amendment and that the law's vague language encourages discriminatory enforcement. That was a big concern for plaintiff attorney Melissa Stewart, who says the law could have opened the door for officers to arrest drag queens for ideological reasons. The harm is already done. I mean, you put anyone in Shelby County Jail in full drag, and I I am not going to guarantee that they come out alive. Drag isn't mentioned anywhere in the law itself. Instead, the law bans performances that are, quote, harmful to minors with no artistic value. The ruling sets a precedent for future legal challenges to drag restrictions in other states. For NPR News, I'm Mariana Bakayao in Nashville. Russia is banning journalists it considers unfriendly from covering this year's economic forum in St. Petersburg. The move highlights the intensifying animosity between Russia and countries that have imposed sanctions connected to the fighting in Ukraine or that have criticized Moscow. You're listening to NPR News. 
This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Josie Guarino. A worker shortage is making it hard for people with substance use disorder in Massachusetts to get the services they need. That's according to Lydia Conley, president of the Association for Behavioral Health Care. She says patients without private insurance are impacted the most. We've seen 290 beds close in the last 90 days. It is a result of we have very low reimbursement rates. The rates Um, do not allow us to attract and retain staff, and so we're seeing this this direct impact on services. Conley says nearly a quarter of all jobs in substance use disorder treatment programs in Massachusetts remain unfilled, and she says the vacancy rate for nurses in the field is closer to 50 percent. The U.S. Department of Labor says it's working with the state of Massachusetts to settle a pricey mistake. In 2020, Massachusetts used $2.5 billion in federal pandemic relief money to pay for unemployment benefits. But state funds should have been used to pay those claims. The mistake was caught during a state audit. A lightning strike is being blamed for a massive fire that engulfed an historic church in central Massachusetts. The fire chief in Spencer says the first congregational church caught fire yesterday afternoon when a storm was moving through the area. Nearly 100 firefighters from around 18 departments responded to the scene. The church, built in 1863, has been deemed a total loss. The cannabis company True Leave will lay off 128 employees in Massachusetts. That's according to a notice True Leave filed with the state. The company will close retail stores in Worcester, Framingham, and Northampton by the end of this month. True Leave also plans to close its growing processing and testing facility in Holyoke by the end of the year. True Leave announced it was pulling out of the state as part of a company-wide trim down. The company was disciplined following the death of an employee last year in the Holyoke processing plant who suffered lung problems blamed on breathing dust. Well, we can expect some showers for tonight lasting into much of the day tomorrow. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, a private corporation funded by the American people, and Jarl and Pamela Moan, thanking the people who make public radio great every day and also those who listen. All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Eric Deggins. Authorities in eastern India are still investigating the cause of a major train crash there yesterday. The incident involved two passenger trains traveling in opposite directions. More than 280 people were killed and hundreds more were injured or trapped in the wreckage. Prime Minister Narendra Modi issued a statement saying he was distressed by the tragedy, promising support for survivors. Joining us now to tell us more is Joe Wallen. He's a journalist in Delhi who covers South Asia. Joe, welcome to the show. Hi, good evening, Eric. It's a pleasure to speak to you, and I only wish it could be on more positive terms. Of course. So what do we know at this point about what exactly happened? So the investigation is currently underway into what exactly happened. It's believed at this stage that a busy passenger train took the wrong line as it came through a station and ended up hitting a cargo train. Um, It's unclear exactly why this happened, but it's believed that it could have been given the wrong signal. Now, when the two trains collided, debris uh, and possibly some of the carriages landed on a separate line and collided with a third train, another busy passenger train that was heading in the opposite direction. So this death toll seems so high. Do we know if these trains were over capacity? 
So, so this, I think, is one of the key points that really needs looking into. Um, now, India's railway system or railway network doesn't match the demand that is that is out there. What we saw from the visuals that have come out were very packed carriages, particularly in the sleeper and general class, which the cheapest tickets on the offer. Um, you know, allegations that a lot of those traveling didn't have tickets and, and just crowded onto the train. India has one of the largest rail networks in the world, and it's also a country where hundreds of train accidents are reported each year. Are there concerns about the overall safety of the system? Absolutely. There, there are concerns that while India is trying to rapidly upgrade its, its infrastructure to, to meet the demands of its population, that safety regulation is not upgraded at the same rates. There aren't enough fundamentally trained professionals uh, to work in the system. And those that are in place say they're having to work for 14, 16 hours a day to try and cover shifts, which can lead to human error. The natural question, of course, when uh, an accident this terrible happens, you wonder if there's any implications for the government and particularly uh, for Prime Minister Narendra Modi. Yes, there's been a lot of finger pointing. Mr. Modi, uh, in his usual triumphant fashion, uh, announced uh, the release of the Kavash system in 2019, which is an Indian-made train collision avoidance system. And the government promised that this would be rolled out across the country. And essentially how it should work would be that if a train goes through a signal and is approaching another train, the engine would automatically close off to avoid a collision. But since 2019, it's only been rolled out to around 2% uh, of the railway network. So quite a lot of opposition politicians have been pointing that fact out. That was journalist Joe Wallen in Delhi. Joe, thanks so much for sharing your reporting. Thanks, Eric. Our next story is about one woman's work to keep a moment in Chinese history alive. Think back to the late 1940s and the civil war between China's communists and nationalists. In the final days of that conflict, a young girl found herself on a beach with nowhere to hide as a battle erupted around her. Communist soldiers saved her, sacrificing their lives in the process. Now, more than 70 years later, NPR's John Ruwich caught up with her. Zheng Axing lives in a temple right on the beach in Fujian province where she nearly died. She's in her upper 80s now with hollowed cheeks and weathered skin. She's hard of hearing too. And when NPR showed up, she thought we were tourists who just wanted a picture with her as she finished placing incense sticks in urns. A lot of tourists do come here to see Zheng and the temple which she built. It was from all women's heart, nothing special. But this temple is special. From the outside, it looks like other temples in China. An ornate wood and marble building with carved pillars. It has an orange tile roof adorned with a pair of dragons. However, 24 soldiers sacrificed themselves on this beach. Three others died nearby. I built this temple to honor the 27 soldiers all together. It not only honors them, it deifies them. Inside the main hall at the front altar sit 24 statuettes of the soldiers. Their serene faces and long ears resemble Buddhist and Taoist sculptures. Each is about two feet tall. They're dressed in the powder blue uniforms of the People's Liberation Army. Some hold pistols, others medical kits. One has a bugle. All wear hats with a red star. Zheng says in the past, there were temples built to honor other mortals, like Kaksinga, a Ming Dynasty general. 
or the 9th century shaman who became Mazu, the goddess of seafarers. The PLA soldiers also saved a lot of people back then, so I want to build a temple for them. The irony, of course, is that those soldiers were fighting for a staunchly atheist political party, one that 74 years later still rules China today and still has a complicated relationship with religion. It was so hard to build a temple for the soldiers. I spent a lot of money. Everything was difficult. When local officials were supportive, things went smoothly. When they weren't, the project was delayed. The temple was completed in 1996. It was a boom time for China's economy. Politics was pushed to the background. Religion flourished. The army temple gained a following, and it was rebuilt more elaborately with more money in 2005. Inside, a woman tosses jiao bei, or moon blocks. They're curved pieces of wood for a kind of fortune telling. Zhang explains. People need to have a good idea what they want to pray for in front of the PLA soldiers. The soldiers are clean, and if you come clean, they will protect you. If you play dirty, they will ignore your request. The temple has had visits over the years by generals and local officials. Zhang says soldiers come on the anniversary of the founding of the army and on tomb sweeping day in the spring. Under Chinese leader Xi Jinping, though, the government has clamped down on religion, most notably Islam in the far west, where the authorities have run a relentless campaign of assimilation and detention of Muslims. At one point, Zhang's grandson rushes over and tells us we need permission from local officials to do interviews here. The government's rules state otherwise, though, and Zhang herself was undeterred. A month after the battle on the beach all those years ago, communist forces declared victory and established the People's Republic of China. The nationalists had fled to Taiwan and nearby islands, where they set up a government that exists to this day. With tensions on the rise again and increasing talk of war, Zhang says she prays each day to the spirits of those soldiers who saved her life. I have lived a painful life, and now I'm telling you that I pray for peace. I don't want anything else. I don't want the money, just peace, so that we can eat, live a happy life, and be safe. That, she says, would be enough. John Ruich, NPR News, Chongwu, China. Some people only know New York City from songs, movies, books, and TV shows. NPR's Jennifer Vanasco says a new exhibition uses that pop culture to explore everything that makes New York a city that people both love and love to hate. Maybe you live here in New York, or maybe you're someone who feels like you've lived here because you've seen it on a screen so often. All right, we'll divide the room in half. The Museum of the City of New York is celebrating its 100th anniversary. This past century has been rich in pop culture, stretching from silent films and early phonographs to CGI and streaming everything. And then there's paintings and photography and fashion and books. The exhibit, This is New York, captures it all. Lily Tuttle is one of the curators. New York is kind of the most American and least American city. She says how people see New York City is 
messy. It's crowded, dirty, smelly, rude, cacophonous place, and also glamorous and wonderful and glitzy and fabulous and elegant and cool. It's all in here, all at once. The fictional and the factual blend together in this exhibit, like they tend to do in New York. Over here is a lamppost from Sesame Street. Over there, an Edward Hopper painting set in a lonely movie theater or a photo of boys jumping into the East River, or a 1953 film of an elevated train racing through the sky, set to Duke Ellington's Daybreak. Step on an illuminated outline of one of the five boroughs, and you'll hear a song from that borough. A song that's about New York, of course. This one's from Jennifer Lopez. She's from the Bronx. Or Wu-Tang Clan from Staten Island. Salt and Peppa, Anthony B, the Irish Rovers, or hey, I know you know this one. From Manhattan. Start spreading the news. In another room, take a book off the shelf, place it on a scanner, and here's Leah Delaria reading Harriet the Spy. Harriet looked through her peephole and saw both faces staring right at her. A third room surrounds you with 16 screens of film clips. They tell New York's story, which is really a story of destruction and redemption that belongs to all of us, whether you live here or not. Curator Lily Tuttle says that's thanks to the artists who've been inspired by the city. Once you move away from, you know, the hot dogs and the pizza and the dirty apartments and the subway, it's like, no, this city will always rise again because of the creativity that we're celebrating in this exhibition. Jennifer Vanasco, NPR News, New York City. Start spreading the news. I'm leaving today. I want to be a part of it. New York, New York, these vagabond shoes. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Josie Guarino. Join WBUR Thursday at the Somerville Theater for the Moth Main Stage, featuring live music and five true stories told live with no notes. Tickets at WBUR.org slash events. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Catchlight Painting, committed to enhancing new and historic homes with a thoughtful approach to interior and exterior painting. More at catchlightpainting.com. And The Huntington, presenting the Lehman Trilogy, winner of the 2022 Tony Award for Best Play, starts June 13th at the Huntington Theater, huntingtontheater.org. We can expect another raw gray day for tomorrow with a good chance for some rain. Highs again only in the mid-50s. And we start the work week much of the same with gray skies, showers for Monday, temperatures near 60. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Janine Herbst with these headlines. Officials in India say they haven't found additional survivors from the massive derailment of two passenger trains last night in the eastern part of the country. At least 280 people died. Hundreds more were injured. There's no word on the cause of the derailment.
A federal judge in Tennessee says the state's law placing strict limits on drag shows is unconstitutional. In a ruling late last night, U.S. District Judge Thomas Parker called the law unconstitutionally vague and said it encouraged discriminatory enforcement. The law is the second major proposal targeting the LGBTQ community this year in that state. And rain is helping firefighters in Nova Scotia battle wildfires that have destroyed hundreds of buildings and forced thousands to evacuate. I'm Jeanine Herbst, NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Bank of America, offering access to resources and digital tools designed to help local to global companies make moves for their businesses. Learn more at bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness. And from Plymouth Gin Distillery, Plymouth Gin is imported from England's southwest coast, distilled using a blend of seven botanicals, including juniper berry, coriander seed, and citrus peel. Plymouth Gin, since 1793. This is NPR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Eric Deggins. rock baby on the treetop. Whether you're a parent, child, or former kid, it's likely you've heard that lullaby before. Or maybe you know this one. Hush, little baby, don't say a word. Mama's gonna buy you a mockingbird. Even magical, fictional nannies rely on lullabies. Just ask Mary Poppins, heard here, using a little bit of reverse psychology. Stay awake, don't rest your head, don't lie down upon your bed. Lullabies transcend language. even made it all the way to Carnegie Hall in New York City. That's where the Lullaby Project takes the stage. Started in 2011, the project brings together parents and caregivers with professional artists to write and perform personal lullabies for their babies. This year's concert celebrating the project took place earlier today in New York and live streamed on YouTube. Here was a lullaby from last year. I love and cherish everything about you. We work with amazing, amazing musicians um, who are really sensitive people um, and who, who really know how to connect with parents and families, um, but who also are really flexible musicians and can let parents guide them uh, through the process. Tiffany Ortiz is the director of early childhood programs at Carnegie Hall. She says the project began with a focus not just on children, but on their parents. We had a partnership with a local hospital here in New York City, Jacoby Medical Center. The staff approached us and wondered what role could music and songwriting play in supporting their, their patients, primarily their young parents, their, supporting their well-being, supporting that attachment between uh, parent and child, particularly for parents who are experiencing high stress um, or those who are negatively impacted by social inequalities and injustices. Ortiz says about 200 to 300 parents participate 
annually in New York, with 800 to 900 parents involved globally each year. The experience, she says, is deeply personal for the parent. Often it begins with a letter to your baby, uh, where a parent can express their hopes, their dreams, their wishes for their child. That gets transformed into the lyrics of the song. And then music is, is incorporated. And parents, just to say, are really involved in the entire process. They're leading this process. They're thinking about not just the messages that they want to share, but the language, the culture, the musics that they hope to share with their child. And so all of that gets really wrapped up in this beautiful gift of a song that they create personally for, for their child. I trust you, you know what to do. My favorite thing is just how much love there is in the room. Um, it's a very vulnerable and tender process. There's this real sense of shared community, shared love for the, the young ones in our lives, um, and the, the ability to do so in a creative, fun way through music making has been um, just an incredible experience. I mean, there's a lot of joy, but there's also a lot of sadness that sometimes gets wrapped up in these lullabies or, or journeys that families have experienced. And to find the threads of human connection through this process has been incredibly powerful. We think of lullabies as a sweet way of easing children into sleep. But the powers of a lullaby can go further to comfort, to heal, and to bring parents closer to their children, even under the most difficult circumstances. Carnegie Hall's Lullaby Project isn't the only one of its kind hoping to reach mothers in need. NPR's Alyssa Nadwerney discovered a similar program in South Carolina, inside a women's prison. When someone is pregnant and they're incarcerated, separation after they give birth is almost immediate. Many new mothers contend with emotional surges and anxieties during this time. But for those serving time, there's the additional formidable physical barrier. At a women's prison outside Columbia, South Carolina, a project is underway to help reconnect a few mothers with their children through the creation of lullabies. This is only a moment. Please don't forget me. Feel my arms around you. You are the best in me, Mama's world. That's Ashley. We're only using her first name here. She's incarcerated at the Graham Camille Griffin Correctional Institution. And she's taking part in the prison's pilot songwriting program, working with graduate students from the University of South Carolina School of Music. I was overjoyed. I was happy about being able to do this, but I have no, like, music training or anything, so it was a whole learning experience for me. But all I did was, you know, thought about my kids and then just started writing what I would say, what I would want to say to them. The women enrolled in the Lullaby Project are expecting mothers, along with some, like Ashley, who've recently delivered. The creative process in music doesn't always follow the timing of a gestational clock. So the song-making teams of graduate students, their professor, and the women incarcerated in the South Carolina prison continue their work even after a woman has her baby. We wrote down the words and everything, and we told them, hey... We wanted like this, like I, I wanted mine kind of a Disney theme. But I just went off the songs that I, how I wanted it to sound. I was like, I wanted a little bit of Little Mermaid, Part of Your World, and then the song off of Beauty and the Beast when they dance together at like the end. 
together, the grad students and the mothers chart out lyrics, workshop the melodies, and collaborate on the layers of musicality needed to get the lullabies just right for a vocalist with the university. All right. So Ashley has a, a chorus going here. Claire Bryant is a professor at the University of South Carolina School of Music. Oh, Mama's World. This is only a As people out in the in the world, we maybe don't think about incarcerated mothers. We do not ask them about why they're there. That's not our business. That's not why we're there. We try to make them feel like just human beings making music. Bryant participated as a student when the Lullaby Project initiative began over a decade ago through the Weill Music Institute at Carnegie Hall in New York City and in 2022, worked to pilot the program at the Graham Camille Griffin Correctional Institution. You know, incarcerated people will be coming back to our communities. They will be part of our society. They are part of our society. They are human beings. And who do we want coming back? And how do we want them to spend their incarceration? Ashley has five children, including her most recent she says the hardest part of this is being away from them as she counts down the days till her parole or release. And she says the good graces of the students is not lost on those serving out their sentences. It's, it, yeah, they could be volunteering anywhere else, like, like an elementary or something, but they took their time to come to a prison. And even though we are here for crimes and we are sitting here being punished and everything. We're still human and we still have families that care about us and everybody makes mistakes and we're here paying for our mistakes. So any mother out there that has kids and they're your world, let them know it. Gabe and Izzy, y'all mean so much. Not enough words can describe how much. Y'all are mama and daddy's world. We will always be here for you through the ups and downs. You will never have to question how much you are loved. Please slow down. Don't grow up so fast. Y'all are our hearts, mama and daddy's world. This is only a moment. Please don't forget me. Feel my arms around you. You are the best of me. That was the musical lullaby co-produced by Claire Bryant and her students at the University of South Carolina School of Music and co-written by Ashley, a mother of five serving out her sentence at the Graham Camille Griffin Correctional Institution in Columbia, South Carolina. The most common use of a lullaby we know is to help a child gently fall asleep. There's love in a lullaby spell, but is there something else going on too? NPR Selena Simmons Duffin wanted to find out. Pretty much every night, I turn on the sound machine 
and climb up into my eight-year-old's top bunk to lie down with her. Sometimes she wants to talk or just snuggle, but a lot of the time... This is a favorite lullaby from the Music Together class she took when she was younger. Just about 90 seconds later... and she is out. Honestly, when it works like this, it makes me feel like I have a superpower or I'm casting a spell. You will fall asleep. Listen to my voice. It does fill me with wonder, but it also makes me curious to understand what's happening and why. So I called Professor Tiffany Field of the medical school at the University of Miami. When you look at lullabies, they're all slow and rhythmical. That can help calm children's thoughts, she says, so they can lull themselves to sleep. She did a study of toddlers and preschoolers taking naps in the university nursery. The teachers played classical music at the beginning of nap time. With the toddlers, there was a 35% faster sleep onset. With the preschoolers, there was a 19% faster sleep onset. So, of course, the teachers loved that. Many of the studies on this are done with preterm infants in the NICU, including one which compared infants who heard Mozart to infants who heard their mother's lullabies, plus a control group that didn't hear any music. And what they found was that the mother's lullabies were more soothing to the infants. They slept better, but they also um, showed a lot of effects of decreased heart rate and respiration, better feeding, which probably explain why they had fewer days in the neonatal intensive care unit. And their mother's anxiety was reduced. Now, I love to sing, but that is not a requirement, says Field. You can sing badly, or if you really don't want to sing, a back rub can have similar effects. But there is just something about lullabies, says Sam Mayer of the University of Auckland, who directs the music lab. His team did a study where they played songs for infants in an unfamiliar language. Some of the songs were lullabies, and some weren't. When they're listening to these lullabies, even though they're totally unfamiliar and, you know, not in the language the baby understands, they relax more. So there's something in like the the kind of DNA of lullaby that that helps to calm infants. He says in a lot of their research, they turn to lullabies because they're just everywhere, all over the world. Hirut Kasa is from Ethiopia and a mom of two, including a one-year-old son. This is what she sings to him. <laughs> That's the way they sleep. She says it works like magic for her, too. Selena Simmons-Duffin reporting on the magic and science of lullabies. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. 
caffeine is the most widely consumed drug in the world. Here in the U.S., according to a 2022 survey, more than 93% of adults consume caffeine, and of those, 75% consume caffeine at least once a day. So why do so many people feel the need to cut back? Is all that morning joe something to worry about? Life Kit's Andy Tagle has more on the effects of caffeine, plus tips for making sure your relationship with everyone's favorite psychostimulant is a healthy one. Caffeine gets a bad rap. You've heard the whispers. Caffeine stunts your growth, causes heart disease, or dehydrates you. But these rumors just don't ring true for the vast majority of us. Caffeine's real problem seems to be a bad case of guilt by association. Consuming a lot of caffeine is often equated with someone who's really stressed out and uh, working hard. And some of those other behaviors are actually more greater risk factors for health. And so it becomes what we call a confounder in some of this research. That's Marilyn Cornelis, an associate professor of preventive medicine and nutrition at Northwestern University's Feinberg School of Medicine. Someone who's drinking a lot of caffeine might be short on sleep. We know sleep is an important risk factor for a number of uh, diseases. Nicotine is another great example. Smoking and coffee consumption are highly correlated. A smoker will want to consume more coffee in order to get that psychostimulant effect. And we know that smoking is a risk factor for a number of, of health outcomes and diseases. Another important thing to note here, Dr. Ugo Oroku, a gastroenterologist in New York City, reminds us not all caffeinated drinks are created equal. A black coffee or green tea offer antioxidants and a slew of other potential benefits, for example, but syrupy frappuccinos, sodas, energy drinks. Do you have a lot of sugar um, and a lot of other contents that may not be helpful for you? Of course, we know it really depends on what you're taking uh, with your caffeine um, before the judgment comes in. You get the point. Caffeine in general is not a lone bandit out to steal your calm and crib your good health, but some of its closest cronies might be. Standing alone, caffeine actually offers a ton of potential benefits. It's thought that for every one cup of coffee you drink, um, there's a 3% decreased risk in arrhythmia. Caffeine is thought to protect your liver from cirrhosis and other liver diseases. Coffee consumption has been shown to reduce risk of type 2 diabetes and Parkinson's disease. It treats migraine headaches. And uh, the list goes on and on. So what does healthy caffeine consumption actually look like? The answer will be different for everyone. For her postdoctoral work, Cornelis studied the relationship between the human genome and our coffee and caffeine consumption. We found that genetic variants that were related to increased caffeine metabolism were also related to increased caffeine consumption behavior. What that means is our appetite and tolerance for caffeine is written in our genetic code. So I might naturally be more of a one coffee a day person, and you might be more the three coffee type. We all have a caffeine sweet spot but that's not a blank check to consume as much caffeine as you want. The Food and Drug Administration suggests a max of 400 milligrams of caffeine a day for the average person. The amount of caffeine in about four cups of coffee, because that's an amount not generally associated with dangerous or negative effects. From there, listen to your body. Your body can give you feedback, you know, a jitteriness, anxiety, you know, a raised um, pulse that you're just consuming too much in a given moment. If you do feel the need to make a change, Uroku says go slow, consider swaps, and don't be scared to experiment. Caffeine should be a helpful friend in your corner, not the boss of you. For NPR's Life Kit, I'm Andy Tegel. We have more tips at npr.org slash lifekit. This is NPR News.
Good afternoon. I'm Josie Guarino. Thanks for spending your weekend with 90.9 WBUR. The time is 539. Coming up at 6, we've got a brand new two hours of storytelling with the Moth Radio Hour. That's coming up on the radio and anytime on the WBUR app. Turn your old vehicle into new news. Support the programs you love by donating your car or boat to WBUR. Details at WBUR.org slash cars. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Empire Loan, with eight locations in New England, proudly recognizing the Lenny Zakem Fund. Founded by civil rights leader Lenny Zakem, this public, nonprofit, charitable organization supports nearly 400 local grassroots groups committed to advancing social, economic, and racial justice. The Lenny Fund.org. And Boston University Student Employment, connecting you to smart, reliable students for part-time work. Free job listings at bu.edu slash SEO. Herbst with these headlines. President Biden today signed the debt ceiling bill into law, averting a U.S. debt default for the first time in the country's history. Congress passed the bill this week. The Treasury Department had warned the U.S. would run out of cash to pay its bills by Monday. The bill had bipartisan support, but Biden noted in a speech from the Oval Office last night that both sides had to make compromises. Russia is banning journalists it considers unfriendly from covering this year's economic forum in St. Petersburg. By unfriendly, it means countries that have imposed sanctions connected to the fighting in Ukraine or that have criticized Moscow. And Turkey says it's sending commandos to Kosovo to help a NATO peacekeeping force put down unrest. I'm Janine Herbst, NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Raymond James, a firm focused on transforming lives, businesses, and communities through tailored wealth management, banking, and capital market solutions. Learn more at RaymondJames.com. From Indeed, a hiring platform for helping businesses of all sizes attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one place. More at Indeed.com NPR. And from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Eric Deggins. Looking at media coverage of Hollywood, especially in recent years, it seems obvious. Show business has a problem with behind-the-scenes abuse and harassment. But this week, Maureen Ryan, a contributing editor of Vanity Fair, longtime critic and journalist, surprised TV fans by revealing in the magazine that a classic show, beloved for its diverse cast and creativity, was actually steeped in incidents of racism, sexism, and bullying behavior behind the scenes. That show was lost, centered on the surreal experiences of a group of people stranded on an island after a plane crash, which won Emmy, Golden Globe, and Peabody Awards during its six-season run on ABC in the mid-2000s. But according to writers and actors who spoke to Ryan behind the scenes, showrunners Carlton Cuse and Damon Lindelof created an atmosphere where racism and bullying were tolerated and encouraged on the set. Ryan's Vanity Fair article is an excerpt from her upcoming book, Publishing Tuesday, titled Burn It Down, Power, Complicity, and a Call for Change in Hollywood. Maureen Ryan joins us now. Welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me. I'm very, very happy to be here. Some of the examples you came up with, uh, star Harold Perrineau, who people might know from Oz or the Matrix movies, who is black, was written off the show after he tried to speak up about how he felt his character was being marginalized and 
There was an Asian writer who was referred to as the Korean to her face. I mean, how did they not know this was terrible even back then? Honestly, it's similar to things you still see going on in the comedy world, which is the attitude with comments and maybe even actions that are racist or sexist, homophobic, transphobic. Oh, this is me being edgy. But those edgy comments are really meant to make the people of color in the room, the women of color in the room, the LGBTQIA people in the room, make them aware that they don't have power and the people making the offensive comment have the power. In particular, Damon Lindelof, who was a co-showrunner on Lost with Carlton Cuse, seemed to have a pretty good uh, reputation in the industry. What did he and Carlton Cuse say about why this happened on Lost? To some degree, a lot of their responses revolve around the, the idea that they were not aware of how the room was affecting people or aware of certain interactions or comments at all. So they, they addressed it, um, but a lot of their responses revolved around the idea that they did not recall what occurred or were not present. You know, people might wonder why we're spending so much time talking about a show that went off the air in 2010, but your book makes the case that A, this kind of stuff is still going on in the industry, and B, Hollywood seems to believe that an abusive culture is necessary to create brilliant TV and film. And I wanted you to expand on that a little. I think that there's an unspoken rule in some people's head, that person is too nice to be truly creative that person is too considerate to be a genius, which is a horrifying, unexamined assumption that I think that a lot of people maybe don't even know that they have in the audience or in the executive suite. This is a thing that I come across time and again, that some people are not seen as incredible geniuses or absolutely undeniable creators that people must give a big contract to unless they are consistently doing things to other people and to productions as a whole that are damaging or unprofessional or just garden variety crappy. You and I are having this conversation while the Writers Guild of America has been striking for more than a month asking for pay equity, protection from exploitation. Talk a little bit about the connection between the things that the writers are striking for and this, these larger issues that you talk about in your book. If I had to describe my book in one word, the word would be exploitation. Mm. People are being exploited routinely, and the exploitation can come in the form of coercive acts from their boss, bullying, racism, toxicity, homophobia, transphobia, they are not paid enough. Again, it's that word exploitation. You're asking people to work 12 to 18 to 20 hours a day, not see their families, not get enough sleep. And on top of that, perhaps deal with bullying. People have just had it, frankly. How should fans feel about these situations? There's been a lot more journalism, especially in recent years, that kind of pulls the curtain back on how things really function in a realistic way for most people who work in the industry or for too many people who work in the industry. So I think fans are more savvy and there's been a shift in what fans think and how they roll. 
And they really, they don't want their entertainment to be something that they enjoy, but the way it was made hurt people. They don't want that. I want to close with a question that'll sound a bit personal, but we we talked about this before this interview started, and you know I'm going to ask. Um, back in 2017, you wrote a story in the trade magazine Variety about being assaulted by a TV executive. And I was wondering, how did you come to the decision to speak publicly about that? And how has that impacted your work in reporting on abuse that other people have suffered in the industry? I am really glad you asked that. Thank you. Um, I came to that decision because, you know, in the fall of 2017, so many people were speaking their truths. And I'll tell you, Eric, I decided to go public about that because it affected me. It almost drove me out of the industry. And it, I just wanted to be one more voice saying, this is how people get driven away. This is how people endure, you know, mental health challenges and cannot do the thing that they love, not because they're not good at it, but because they were put in an impossible position and suffered negative effects on their lives, which I, I definitely did. Um, being able to be public about it was a huge weight off my mind. And I think that without that experience, which I would not wish on anyone. I don't think that all the reporting I did in the wake of Me Too, all the reporting I did in my book, I don't know if it would have happened. I certainly don't think it would have happened the same way. And what that experience, again, it was really, really rough. But what it taught me was how to interact with survivors, I think. It's very, very possible for me to be a rigorous reporter with stories that are very rigorously fact-checked and edited and hold in my mind the idea that I have to treat these conversations in a particular way, not just so that I get what I may need for the story, but so that I f can sleep at night about how people were treated. That's journalist Maureen Ryan. Her Vanity Fair article is Lost Illusions, the Untold Story of the Hit Show's Poisonous Culture. And her book, which is coming out next week, is called Burn It Down. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Birmingham, Alabama is celebrating the 60th anniversary of the city's civil rights movement. It marked a turning point when leaders, including Reverend Martin Luther King Jr., looked at children to join the struggle for equal rights. The brutal response from white segregationists shocked the world, and it galvanized support for the Civil Rights Act. NPR's Debbie Elliott has this look back on what's known as the Children's Crusade. Paulette Roby walks along historic 4th Avenue in downtown Birmingham. All of these are black-owned businesses along here, the barbershop. Roby chairs an association of the so-called foot soldiers, dedicated to documenting the stories of people like Roby, who as children spent the spring of 1963 peacefully marching for human rights. Roby heads to where it happened, Kelly Ingram Park. This is a very sacred place for me. It's catty-cornered to 16th Street Baptist Church. Demonstrators deployed from there, but police were waiting with dogs and fire hoses and yellow school buses turned paddy wagons. Several times I had to run to keep from either being arrested or the dogs being let loose on me. She eventually was arrested. Roby, now 73, was 13 years old at the time. 
her memories are raw when she passes a particular magnolia tree. I get an eerie feeling when I come around that tree because of the time that they put the water hose on us. And I remember how Dr. King had us to lock our arms so that the pressure of the water hose would not take us halfway down the street. Sometimes it's just get hard for you to talk about it. And it was hard for the nation and the world to see back in 1963. This scene, officers turning attack dogs and fire hoses on the young protesters, was pivotal in the civil rights movement. The images sparked outrage and drew new attention to the struggle to end Jim Crow laws that relegated black people to second-class citizenship. Taking the fight to Birmingham was a deliberate strategy to crack the hardcore segregated South. Activists here had met fierce resistance trying to desegregate schools, buses, and retail businesses. There were beatings and bombings, so many that the city was known as Bombingham. Although there was resistance to change, this 1963 campaign actually won. I think that's what people need to remember. Birmingham Mayor Randall Woodfin. In commemorating 60 years later, there's an opportunity to say, here is the blueprint on how to affect change, how to make change. Here is the strategy, how it got done and won. My name's Terry Collins, and I was one of the thousands that participated in the Children's March. Birmingham at that time was in constant turmoil. We were in a state of siege. Fear and intimidation, Collins says, were part of daily life, so much that kids were willing to rise up in ways that their parents could not. People had economic concerns, and the children were not subject to that. They didn't have a job. They didn't have to be concerned about their careers being ruined and all that. We had nothing to lose. Collins was 15. His younger brother marched alongside him. He recalls the meticulous organization behind the Children's Crusade, including classes in nonviolence. If you could not refrain from retaliation when faced with force, he says, they would find another role for you, perhaps making signs. The demonstrators would divide up and depart from different directions to multiple destinations. He says they were prepared for attacks and even jail. Normally, people run away from being arrested, but we ran to it. Even though we might have to suffer brutality, we were going through that anyway. The threat of jailing us, so what? We were already in jail, even in our neighborhoods. There was just no fence. After months of mass meetings and training, the foot soldiers got their cue that it was time to deploy on local radio. There was a signal, and that was Good googly woobly. That was the signal that that day, that a certain time, we would walk out of school and all converge downtown. Good googly woobly. What's up, everybody? I woke up that morning with my mind on freedom. I was so excited. I woke up this morning with my mind on freedom. Janice Wesley Kelsey was 16. I marched on May 2nd, 1963. It was a Thursday, and I remember it like yesterday. She, too, was tuned into DJ Shelley Stewart on WENNAM for instructions, all in code. He was saying, we're going to have a party in the park. 
I knew what that meant. Kelly Ingram part. Uh, we're going to jump and shout. We're going to turn it out. We were going to school, but we weren't going to stay. Don't forget, kids. There's going to be a party in the park. And don't forget your toothbrushes, because luncheon will be served. She slipped a toothbrush and change of underwear in her purse, prepared for jail. She was arrested and held for four days. Kelsey says participating in the Children's Crusade taught her to question a system that left black students with outdated hand-me-downs from all-white schools and barred them from eating at a lunch counter. And that was my first indication that something was wrong. I knew about segregation, but my thought was it's just separation. I didn't get the idea of inequality. Violence against activists continued that year, leading up to the Ku Klux Klan bombing of 16th Street Baptist Church that killed four black girls. Kelsey says talking about what happened in 1963 didn't come easily. She was silent for decades. But unless the foot soldiers tell their stories, she says, the legacy of the Birmingham movement could be in jeopardy. She's worried now, 60 years later, conservative politicians are trying to curtail the teaching of such history. It concerns me that some people in leadership positions, like governors and some legislators, are trying to turn back the hands of time. They are putting legislation forward that would say we should not study black history. And this is a part of American history. And it should not be shut out. Back in Kelly Ingram Park, Paulette Roby says it was their faith and the music that kept the foot soldiers pressing forward. Those songs, those freedom songs, they really, really, really did a lot for me and got me over. I woke up this morning with my mind set on freedom. I woke up this morning with my mind set on freedom. Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. Ruby says the fight for equal rights isn't over and wonders if the struggle will ever